What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Back to the Movies. I'm your host, Ben, and with me, as always, is my co-host... Nat McGee. Ben, it is our final 1990 movie. Can I you believe, believe we did it? I can't. I honestly can't, man. It's been a crazy... What is it? Six, uh, seven, eight months? Eight months? Yeah. It's been a long, long road of 1990 movies, but we finally have reached the final one. For new listeners... Back to the Movies is a show where we're going back to a certain year of cinema and covering a very large handful, two handfuls, like really scooping in to the pot and just taking as much as you possibly can amount of movies. Just folding our shirt over and just filling it up full of movies. (laughs) Exactly. So we are covering 1990, and this this episode is our last 1990 movie episode, and the movie is Tim Burton's classic... Edward Scissorhands. Oh my God. Ben, are you a scissor fan? Do you like scissoring? <laughs> you know, I, I've been known to cut some things with scissors before. I, oh, I can man. make use of a pair of scissors. Okay. Did the scissoring go over your head? I, I'm no, just checking. I got the joke. Okay. <laughs> I just wasn't going to acknowledge it. <laughs> well, now I've made an ass of myself. I'm so sorry. I meant more of the movie. I meant the movie. Are you a, an Edward Scissor fan? For once. Uh, this was me coming to a movie for the first time on this podcast. Wow, cool. Yeah, okay. I had never seen it before, almost by deliberate choice. You know, I, I don't consider myself a huge Tim Burton fan, although I've come to appreciate him a little bit more recently. As I was coming into my film awareness, the movies that he was releasing were not movies that I liked. You know, I really got to know him at the later half of his career, which I think most people would agree is like not his prime stuff. Oh, that's a damn shame. No, it's all about the first 10 years. And even when I did see movies of his that I liked, you know, like uh, Batman or Pee-wee's Big Adventure or whatever, uh, I chalked that up to being like the exceptions, not the rules. So this one, given its outsized reputation as like a marketing icon and my general lukewarmness on Burton meant that I just was not that interested in seeing it before now. Wow. I've seen this movie a lot. I think I had a DVD and I, I've definitely seen it five or six times growing up. Oh, are we talking that Tyrion collection level or just like a regular player? Regular player, but it was definitely one of the earlier DVDs that I ever owned. So it got a lot of watches. It was somehow in the circuit when I was like 11, 12, and it got a lot of airtime to my eyeballs. So I'm very familiar with this movie. It had been a long time since I had watched it, and I kind of forgot a lot about it, but it all came flooding back to me. It's a pretty good movie. I I like it a lot. This movie is lovely. I love this movie. It was wonderful. What a great way to end our incredibly long series on 1990. Totally. Yeah, I just forgot that it's so kind of wholesome and, like you said, lovely. It definitely has an edge. Yeah. Kind of a rough edge especially towards the end, but it's a good watch. It's very entertaining and it's just, it's very, very Burton. But I do think Burton for the first half of his career is like one of the better mainstream 
filmmakers. And it just kind of sucks that he decided to like stay in his lane the way he has where he just kind of makes either pretty crappy big ass budget movies like Dumbo or like that aren't necessarily like super Tim Burton-y, but still just aren't that well written or whatever. And then he also just, what I think really is his downfall is that he makes the Burton-y movies that just aren't very good. And it's kind of diluted the brand a little bit. The dark shadows, the Alice in Wonderlands, the, even like the Sweeney Todd's and whatever else was coming out when we were teenagers. Yeah, I I personally like Sweeney Todd, but that's really the last one of his that I truly connected with. But it's like it's like a stinky last one. I know for a fact that you're a big Pee Wee fan, right? Pee Wee's Big Adventure is one of the best movies ever made. <laughs> it is so fresh and fun and so good. I just love it. Yes, huge Pee Wee's Big Adventure fan for sure. I want to talk the whole Burton arc a lot, and I want to try and figure out like what happened. At least a little bit, because it is so fascinating to to put his films in context, to watch them in sequence, to see the heights that he reached early in his career. Because I absolutely agree with you. As far as mainstream filmmakers go, there are few as esoteric and yet somehow still crowd-pleasing and popular and therefore as exciting as Burton. He's the man from 1980-whatever to 2000. Yeah. I don't know, man. I it it might be simpler than we think. Like maybe some people just aren't destined to evolve. Maybe they're just destined to stay where they are yeah. and they're just worth so much in the first place that they can stay where they are. I certainly have a take on it, but I I I think that you're right. You know, there is sort of a distinct lack of evolution to Tim Burton, at least aesthetically. Yeah. You know, the Tim Burton of these films is not that different than the Tim Burton of today in his visual tricks and his proclivities and his obsessions. And over time, when once that was very exciting and new, it's just it's become Tim Burton and has a lot less value to the average consumer. Right. I have a a, a more nuanced take, but I want to I want to save it till we get into the film. Okay, so where does Tim Burton the man come from? A lot of this story is well-known, given how prominent the figure Burton is. But it's worth going over again, particularly because it's so influential on this film in particular. Okay. He grows up in Burbank, California, and he is a lonely, strange, disaffected little kid. Of course. He never feels at home there. What if he was a jock? <laughs> he was the most popular class president prom king. He almost made it to, to, to college football, but then he pivoted. Yeah, freshman year, he he, he tore his rotator cuff, <laughs> blew out his knee, and then he had to transition. This film, Edward Scissorhands, starts as a drawing he made as a teenager. He made a drawing of Edward Scissorhands just as like a, an angsty teen in his doodle notebook. And he held on to it for decades until he got a chance to make it into a film. Damn. He attends Cal Arts uh, for college, which at the time was basically just like an incubator for Disney animation. You just funneled straight through the school into that program. And that is indeed where he wound up. He's clearly an odd fit for that company, but he, you know, worked on numerous projects while he was there. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but I I wanted as a brief aside mention the documentary Waking Sleeping Beauty. I have not. It's a a great documentary about the Disney Renaissance uh, and about how... 
close animation came to ceasing to exist at Disney oh, and wow. how the nineties really turned that around. And there's this really great part of it where one of the animators is showing us home video of touring the studio and all the people who are working there. And every time somebody pops up on camera, they're always goofing off and being buoyant and silly and, and sort of being exactly what you'd expect somebody who works in Disney animation to be like. And then he comes into this small cramped room and there's this sullen faced young man with a mop of dark, messy black hair who looks up at him with like the saddest face you've ever seen. And the guy on the camera goes, hi, Tim, how's it going? And he goes, okay. <laughs> and the camera leaves. So it's clear that like he was, he wasn't exactly the best fit for Disney. He has too distinct a style and too odd an outlook for the house of mouse, but he also was clearly very talented. So while he's there, he begins to develop contacts, and he also gets the opportunity to produce a few short films. Uh, one of the best known is Frankenweenie, which then he'd return to and turn into an animated film later in his career. And he makes a film called Vincent that introduces him to Vincent Price. And the films get circulated around. Their, their dark tone sort of leads to Burton's exile from Disney, but they also get him the attention of Paul Rubens, who then hires him to direct Pee-wee's Big Adventure. There you go. Oh, man. It's a real, like, classic just, you know, go to film school, make some short films, get some attention, work your way up kind of thing. Yeah, and, I mean, it must have been to his benefit that he had such an established brand from word go, which wasn't even, like, called a brand back yeah. then. I'm speaking to his, like, personality, which now, like, people's personalities are referred to as brands, which is really disgusting, but... <laughs> He was the guy at Disney with the black moppy hair, sullen, sitting in a corner. And, like, the art reflects the man yeah. in a way. And that helps. It helps. It's true. It's weird to think about that clip from Waking Sleeping Beauty if Tim Burton had not gone on to become a incredibly famous and successful director. But he does stand out. Yeah. There's clearly, like, something about him that makes him distinct. Right. I mean, he's like a goth. Before, like, God existed. <laughs> Before God, cool. Oh, God, we're going to talk about that with this movie. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I want to just, again, shout out to Pee-wee's Big Adventure. It's one of my favorite movies ever made. It's his first major motion picture. And, like, dude, that movie is the funniest movie ever. I love it. And it's a big hit. It costs $8 million to make it. It makes $40 million. Very successful film. It's so good. I'm telling you. Revisit. I, I love it. I agree. I, the score is one of my favorite Danny Elfman scores of all time. It's so chaotic and so wonderfully like madcap. Yeah. The success of Pee-wee's Big Adventure allows Burton to make Beetlejuice, which is an even bigger hit and makes $80 million on a $15 million budget. Uh, another movie I love. And then he closes out the 80s with Batman, which is a sensation. Uh, it makes $250 million at the domestic box office. It was a huge bonanza on home video and merchandising and so he's made he's like he made three movies each one was a bigger hit than the last and the last one was one of the biggest movies of all time from zero to 60 what a career because that's all in the span of like four years right 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 you're yeah. starting the mid 80s and then just closing it out so now we're at 1990 burton can make any movie he wants to make and he chooses to fast track edward scissorhands which he had begun developing several years earlier after the drawing uh um during like the the pre-production on Pee-wee's Big Adventure, he brought in a novelist named Caroline Thompson to take 
these ideas that he had for the start of his story and these drawings that he had made and turn them into a screenplay. Thompson, at the time, had published a book called Firstborn, which was a dark fairy tale about an aborted fetus that came back to life. So that sounds like a pretty good fit for Burton right there. Let's be fair with Burton. He's never gone, like, full full force dark. He's very sanitized darkness. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and, and to be fair, like, I don't think... I never read Firstborn, but my feeling on it is it's more whimsical than, like, upsetting. Okay. And bear in mind that, like... Frankenweenie, one of his first calling card short films, is about a child whose dog dies, so he brings it back to life like Frankenstein's monster. Like, there's darkness there. It's all very, like, what's those famous um, little drawings of all the little children that die? Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like a famous, like, gothic storybook, and all these children die in different ways. It's like, hey, it's for Adam, who fell down a well. Like, and it's... <laughs> It's like there's no like blood or anything, and it's all very cartoony. Sure, but like sure, that's sure, sort of the sure. that's sort of the uh, Tim Burton style. It's like goth, but without. It's not taking it to that next like David Lynch level. It's it's like, macabre. It's 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 like darkly funny, and that's definitely the space that Burton occupies. Totally. I just wanted to read a quote about what the the author Caroline Thompson said about Burton. He said he's the most articulate person I know, but couldn't put a single sentence together. <laughs> Which I think is just really indicative of who he is. He has such a distinct vision, and yet clearly, like, is this strange, sad, isolated person who can make a movie about a pale-faced, black-haired boy wrapped in leather with scissor hands and <laughs> make him the the loneliest little boy in the world. It's it's true. I I just did some research, and the book I was referring to is. Edward Gorey's The Gashly Crumb Tinies from sure. 1963. If you look at the images of it, it's like super Tim Burton. Yeah, his art style is, is like clearly a, a, a reference point for Burton's. And his stuff all, it does have that sort of like, it's, it's dreary to the point of being comical. Exactly, exactly. Burton's going to make this Edward Scissorhands movie. The studios are just like, okay. You made sure. Batman, like <laughs> yeah. do whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> Uh, so, so what happens next? Although there is one sort of hiccup in production and I want to mention it because it was a, a, something I had not really tracked until this very moment. Warner brothers, Warner brothers makes several disastrous moves in the end of 1990. Mm. They allow John Hughes to smuggle home alone away from them to Fox. Cause they refused to allow him a larger budget than he originally pitched to them. They sell Edward Scissorhands to Fox as well. And they put all their chips for their holiday film of 1990 on Bonfire of the Vanities. Oh, no. They blew that one. They really blew that one hard. I, uh, I'm almost surprised that they survived 1990 with those three massive mistakes. They could have had two of the highest grossing films of the year. The single highest grossing film of the year. And instead, they bet it all on the biggest bomb of the year. I mean, here's, here's my question. If you were a studio executive in 1990... Would you put your money on the best-selling novel adaptation <laughs> or on the Scissorhand movie? Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. May, the, the, the vain Scissorhand movie made by the guy who just, you know, adapted Batman. And they're like, do whatever you want. And he's like, I've had this idea since I was 12. Like, <laughs> Here's this drawing I made when I was a teenager. Yeah. I'm going to turn it into a movie. 
Yeah, exactly. It sounds insane. And I mean, it is crazy to, to point out that like a huge amount of Burton's success appears to be coming on the back of other people's works. Pee-wee was already a big icon and Batman was like arguably the most famous comic book character of all time behind maybe only Superman and Spider-Man. So it's not like he is the calling card. Right. He's taking other people's stuff and he may be enhancing it with his style, but with the exception of Beetlejuice, which is very Burton-y, he still feels like an unproven quantity. Yeah, I guess I guess especially as like a writer director, you know. It's yeah. like what does this guy actually have to say or is he just all all style? But no, he's got he's got things. That's why you got to bet on artists, man, because <laughs> if they're good, they deliver. It's true. It's very true. Anyway, I see you want to mention the DP here. Yeah, his name is Stefan. Uh, oh, wow. I should have looked at this ahead of time. Kapsky? His name is Stefan. Skapsky. Skapsky. He's got like a, a Polish Zapsky? name. Chapsky. Z. I like that. Chapsky. Yeah, that sounds right. Why not? Zapsky. Well, we're going to leave all of that in of me stumbling over the stupid name. Sure. Uh, he also shot Child's Play 2 the same year. And then would continue to work with Burton on Batman Returns and Ed Wood, which I think might be. Burton's two best shot movies. Um, so I just wanted to, to mention him. Not a filmmaker I was overly familiar with, but clearly has a pretty strong pedigree. Nice. Nice. Well, let's get into the plot of this movie and all the actors and all the goings on. Take us away. It starts up with the cool opening credits with like all the machinery and stuff. It's pretty awesome. Right away, it's so Tim Burton-y, right? Oh, totally. Font, the Danny Elfman score, the weird machinery that looks like it has, like, crazy faces. Yep, but it's cool. It lulls you in. And then there's the little framing story with 100-year-old Winona Ryder telling a bedtime story or whatever to her great-great-grandchild, I guess. And then it goes into the main story the main story what, what do you think of that that framing device i was gonna ask you this question <laughs> i it doesn't really track for me i mean it's it's i think the payoff is there at the end when he's still making snow like that is yeah. so wholesome to like yeah. almost a a vomit degree like it's almost too treacly at the very end but it's <laughs> it's pretty good and i remember seeing it as a kid and like it feeling very cool and like right i guess the thing that sort of puzzled me about it is that the snow doesn't enter like the main storyline until almost at the very end it's fine maybe if it had been set up earlier that like part of the reason they went to the mountains was because uh was because winona Ryder like loved the snow or something like that i mean snow is snow like it's magical no matter what so i think it works it's an extension of his topiary yeah he just has a different medium, I guess. It's just like we set up right at the beginning where it's like, I'm going to tell you the story about why it snows in this weird California t- suburb. Right. And then it, yeah. even when it happens the first time, it's like the snow is subsidiary. Like it's not even the main point. I don't know. I didn't, I don't dislike it. I love that kind of framing device, you know, the princess bride framing device or whatever, where somebody's telling you a story. But I definitely was like, I don't exactly understand what purpose burton thinks this is serving yeah i think it's just the magic at the end because it's it is magical when she dances you're not we're wrong. getting ahead of ourselves you're so now there's like this this long establishing of the neighborhood a great scene 
Yeah, it's it's really great. It's like uh, Diane Weist is Weist, another weird name. I think Weist. it's Weist. Weist. She's like going around trying to sell makeup to all her neighbors, and all of her neighbors are kind of assholes to her in one way or another. <laughs> and it's just establishing this community, yeah. which does it goes nameless throughout the movie, but it's just this weird track housing basically suburb with a yeah. gigantic mansion on a hill it's so clearly like the valley and burbank you know it, it doesn't necessarily look exactly like it but it has exactly that vibe yeah the one-story ranch houses the 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 very like tightly packed suburb feel mm-hmm. and i just this sequence is so it's like what home alone did you know, as far as established things, but even better executed because where the Home Alone one is occasionally clunky and some of the stuff being set up doesn't really matter, like all the individual kids. Here, every little detail is relevant and will come yeah, back. Yeah, totally. Like even down to like the Avon makeup and like all of it. The makeup, uh, Janice's sexual experimentation, the gossiping, every part of it, the, the, the curlers in the hair. Yeah. Everything is going to come back. It's so well done. It does such a good job of establishing the mood of this environment and all of the characters that inhabit it. And of immediately ingratiating you to Diane Weist, who, my God, she is so good in this movie. She is. I kind of forgot about her, but she is really good. And she's just so kind and loving and it's really important in this movie that she be that way because you need to buy that she's willing to take Edward into her house without judgment or without fear. And she sells it so well. She makes that choice so quickly. We only get a few moments of her just being this very nice neighborly person beforehand to prime us for it. But between that excellent scripting and her performance, it absolutely sells. Yeah, she's great. Another uh, in treatment alum, my personal favorite <laughs> HBO TV show. She was Gabriel Byrne's therapist. Oh. It was great. Uh, she's she was a legendary actress even at this time, uh, mostly known for her collaborations with Woody Allen. But she's the first person to sign on to the film, and she was so well respected that that basically got the rest of the cast members locked in place. Oh, nice, nice. I gotta say that neighborhood that she's driving around is one of the ugliest I've ever seen. <laughs> The way that they shot it is so, and painted all the houses like yeah. mono colors is so ugly. These it's horrible, terrible. like bright pastels, like they're not like kind of uh, nice and, and 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 faded. They're like almost like fluorescent pastels. Yeah, it's like a fresh can of paint was on those houses. And everything's in this wide on wide angle lenses, so it all looks extra boxy and barren. It's it's so good. Yeah, and they all drive. I mean, th- I guess those are the cars of the times, but like they're just all the cars are the same colors as the houses. It's just awful. And the outfits too. Diane Weiss is wearing this like incredible matching pink outfit, or I guess it's like mauve, like purple, with a hat. I had forgotten though how pretty much for some reason I thought Edward Scissorhands was like very goth, and for about ten minutes it is, but most of it is just. In the suburbs. It's yeah. not that gothy, Burton-y of a movie in terms of, like, the setting. It's all in that Tampa Bay suburb that they shot it in. It's almost more peewee, where it's, like, taking real life and, like, exaggerating it. Yeah. It's a weird meld, because obviously Depp is there making it 
Burtony. And I think that that is a good segue into the his appearance because like he really does kind of own this movie at least in terms of like iconography like it's just immediately iconic his look his whole thing it's fucking johnny depp it's crazy this is his first like super johnny depp performance yeah right yeah yeah he's at this time he's like a tv heartthrob he's on 21 jump street it's really successful but he's trying to break away from that his film roles he really hasn't done that much his first roles nightmare on elm street in 84 where he's like uh the one of the main group of kids but by no means like a standout performance and other than that there isn't much to speak of but he and burton just really hit it off and burton also sort of casts him as like a, a bulwark because fox wants tom cruise that's who they oh, want. God. <laughs> what? Can you imagine? They Jesus. Uh, Burton even meets with him. Like they force him to go to a meeting. Uh, according to the LA Times, Tom Hanks and Gary Oldman were also both offered the role and turned it down. Uh, older than Depp, which I think is interesting, or at least they play older than Depp. Um, and Tom, Hanks could, in particular could. I mean, I could see Tom Hanks doing what Depp is doing, but Tom Cruise could never do that. <laughs> Can you imagine? It would be wacky. I mean, it could be a different type of ever scissor hands, but definitely not the one you see in this movie. You know, obviously Johnny goes on to like do many movies with Tim Burton. He's like his his guy for a long time. And, you know, it goes without saying that Johnny Depp has kind of fallen into the same exact trap that Burton did. In a way, like he kind of did the same (laughs) shit over and over and over again. I thought we were going to acknowledge the fact that he beats his wife, but... Well, that too. I mean, he's got his own domestic problems that I haven't even tried to keep up with because yeah. I just feel like I see a headline like every two months that's like, Johnny Depp spent all his money on private jets and champagne. But I'm talking more just about his uh, his movie career, which I feel yeah. kind of went the same way as Tim Burton, where like he's still a big moneymaker, he's still a big star, but like at some point in the mid to late 2000s, he stopped being someone that you're like, I got to go see the next movie that this guy is in. I feel like you can see that whole trajectory play out in this performance because he's great in this movie. He's undeniably good in a role that like, I think is much harder than it appears because it doesn't seem like he's doing very much. And he has such a stilted manufactured quality to him, but it absolutely sings with the character. And when the movie starts to, climax he starts paying out like a fucking slot machine and everything that's happening in the third act of this movie is anchored by his performance and he's phenomenal in it it's a really really great piece of acting totally but it's also so weird and so untransferable non-transferable to another movie what he's doing in this like it like literally this kind of performance should not work, and it only works because of the exact tone that Burton is setting and because of the, the way that the narrative is so heightened. Well, and I also think Johnny Depp, too. I think he has a lot to do with it because he makes it work. I, I, I totally agree with that. But the thing that wears about him most is his theatricality, is his weird unreality, is his like really overt choices, actorly choices. Well, yeah, and I think that part of the reason he's kind of fallen off is because a lot of his more recent movies don't have as much of this, like, quietness. Like, he kind of always is the showboat now. Like, he's always got to be the center of attention, and, like, he can't be this, like, 
He basically just Jack Sparrowed every role <laughs> that he ever had after Jack Sparrow. Like he's like, okay, this works. People love this, and like to a lesser extent, like when he played Hunter S. Thompson and like um, Fear and Loathing. Like I just right. think at some point, like any sense of like the nuance that he can bring to something like this, the quietness and like the the scared aspect of it. Like I just feel like he didn't bring to something like Burton's chocolate factory movie where like he's just this <laughs> asshole Willy Wonka like he's it's, it's and it just doesn't become it's not as fun to watch because he doesn't have as much vulnerability anymore I honestly haven't seen most of the yeah. movies he's in nowadays I don't know what he's even doing in those movies so I don't even I shouldn't even criticize his recent performances but I just from what I've gathered it's not the same depth that we had back in the day let's talk about the scissors for a second. The scissors, yeah. They're they're intense. This is sort of the uh continuation of that gothic industrial vision that I was talking about in our Jacob's Ladder episode yeah. where things are moving away from I th- I feel like a little bit more traditional horror in the 80s and like we're we're going full on like leather and metal. Yeah. And this is like a perfect encapsulation of that. I, I absolutely agree that there is like sort of this this combination of where it's like machinery made frightening. Yeah. And it's all tied in with like the music at the time, like Marilyn Manson is a big thing, nine inch nails, like it's just that leather, metallic leather. Like and it's it's hardcore. Scary to middle America. The makeup and the scissor gloves were designed by Stan Winston. We've talked about Rob Boutine. On Total Recall. We've talked about Rick Baker on Gremlins 2. We're basically like hitting all of the major makeup effects artists that were at the peak of that before CGI comes to dominate Hollywood you know, a decade or so later. But we have not yet had the opportunity to talk about The King. To talk about Stan Winston. Because he's just, he's a cut above somehow. If you'll excuse the pun. Ha. Huh. <laughs> I just want to briefly go over his career because he's just such an important figure in this era of Hollywood. His first major credit was being brought on to assist the overworked Rob Boutine on John Carpenter's The Thing, which is one of the most incredible special effects projects of all time. He continues to work throughout the 80s. He gets nominated for his first Oscar for a movie called Heartbeeps in 1981. Just want to mention because it's a romantic comedy about two robots falling in love, which I Definitely have to watch at some point. Uh, But his breakout is The Terminator in 1984. And Mm. after that, it's just a parade of incredible work, including Aliens, for which he wins his first Oscar, and Predator, and then basically everything cool from a science fiction film from the late 80s and early 90s. Nice. So he did the scissor hands. I love that. And then he did the scissor hands, which are really fascinating in this film because the concept is so dumb. Like, (laughs) it's so dumb. And yet... They are absolutely believable as extensions of this character's body and are very frightening mm-hmm. and upsetting to look at and work beautifully as the central metaphor for, you know, the things that both isolate you and make you special. It They're a fantastic piece of design. Yeah. Iconic. Iconic. So let's move on to, what's her name? Peggy? Yeah. Peg. Taking him, pe- pe- Peggy taking Edward home. Now, this is a moment that I totally forgot in this movie, which is that for all of its faults, the neighborhood accepts Edward for who he is. I know that they fetishize him and eventually betray him, 
But, and it's it's all just because they're bored with their terrible, yeah. shitty lives. But I totally <laughs> forgot that they do come at him mostly with, like, kindness to start with. Um, yeah. Or just, like, an acceptance of, like, okay, he's here now. Like, right. it's super, like, magical realism-y where he doesn't, no one really bats an eye. It's more just he's, like, an oddity as opposed to it's absolutely true. a weird machine man. Nobody in this movie for one second says, I don't understand. Why do you have scissors for hands? Yeah, or is even afraid of him, really. Like, when he when he shows up for the first time, they don't really bat an eye other than that he's different. And I totally forgot about that. And it makes you, it made me feel something interesting. I was like, wow, this movie is going to go further than just like people being freaked out yeah. at something. It's going to delve a little bit deeper than that. And I really liked that. I think Burton managed it in a way that is, is really tactful, where it's clear that they don't really see him as a person. That they only see in him what they want from him. And that is perhaps the difference between them and Peg who is altruistic in her relationship with Edward. Well, yeah, and if I had to put a exact definition on it, they're treating him as though he had, like, a different skin color or as if he was from a different country. Like, they're, they're not treating him as, like, a weird freak of nature, but they're still treating him as someone who's an outsider and someone who's different. But yeah. it's just interesting the way the movie kind of subverts the expectations that, like, everyone's going to be like, who the fuck is that? Uh, it's true, and you don't know how they're going to react at first when all the ladies start calling each other and gathering on the corner. Yeah. You're like, is this, like, a mob starting to form? What's <laughs> yeah. going on? Like, they would scream if they met a guy with scissors. <laughs> like, I got to be honest, um, Winona Ryder's reaction is quite just, in my opinion. <laughs> Because he's really, really scary. We'll get there, but I, I love the gags with the waterbeds. Oh yeah, waterbeds. I, I miss waterbeds. I love a waterbed as a cultural artifact, and it's such a perfect deployment here when a man has scissors for hands. Great. Really bad for your back, I think. Have you ever slept on to one? Sleep on a waterbed. Like when I was a kid, my friend's parents had one, and it's just great. I, I think <laughs> if I slept on one now, I would have to be in a brace for the next six months. <laughs> I have never slept on one. It seems like a stupid idea to me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we kind of meet the fam, Peggy's yeah. family, one by one. Alan Arkin. Alan fucking Arkin. Yeah. So funny in this movie. He's great. He's He really embodies the clueless dad in a, yeah. in a great way. The authoritative dad who has no idea what's going on. The dad knows best but doesn't actually know anything. Yeah, totally. He's great. Every scene he was in cracked me up. And it really made me realize that, I mean, this is a comedy, which I don't know I had put together before having seen it. I thought it might have been more like just sort of a magically realistic drama the way Burton does these days. But this is very, a very, very funny film. And Burton is a comedian at the start of his career. Like he's making comedy movies. Pee Wee, Beetlejuice, this are all comedies. And now he just doesn't do that anymore. What happened? I don't know. I guess the it's another question that I haven't really prepared an answer for <laughs> by a, by not researching it and b by like not even watching most of the movies that he's made recently. I mean, listen, I, I saw the new Dumbo movie, which I think is his most recent movie. And like, it still had like funny little moments, but yeah. it was just like a CGI shit fest. So like, <laughs> I think all that stuff gets overshadowed, but Arkin is really good. And he's also in Dumbo by the way. Oh, is he? 
Yeah. yeah. I, I have a theory that like Tim Burton's probably pretty cool to work with because he's kind of kept with a lot of the actors and True. his own wife. He manages to work with his own wife. Like that that's gotta say something about the guy. Didn't they get divorced? Oh, did they? I don't know. I haven't been keeping um, up. Yeah, but he does. He he manages to bring back the same actors over and over again. He has strong working relationships with pretty much it seems like anybody he's ever worked with. So clearly he's a really nice guy and a talented person and not an asshole, despite his success. So that's great. Okay, they are divorced. So maybe he's not as great as I thought. So that just shows that I have not been on the Tim Burton train for like 10 years. Where are we now? I was just going through Wikipedia. Throughout this period here, as we're, as Edward is getting introduced to his new life in the town and the townspeople are beginning to sort of gawk and admire him. Uh, we also are getting flashbacks to his origins. And we get to meet Vincent Price as the inventor. Vincent Price is a, a very important figure in Burton's life because he is one of the first evidences of Burton's like pop culture obsessions. Burton's one of these directors who is recycling all of this stuff that he consumed when he was a kid. And one of those things was Vincent Price films. Mm. Price begins as a dramatic actor in period pieces or anything that could make use of his patrician manner. But starting in 1953 with House of Wax, he sort of reinvents himself as the ultimate camp horror icon. Okay. And he has this tremendous run of horror films that are all, to one degree or another, very silly because Vincent Price is a pretty silly person. Yeah, totally. My favorite by far is the Abominable Dr. Fibes. So check that one out if you're looking for a place to start with his stuff. But they're all wonderful and charming. And we're clearly a huge influence on Burton because one of the short films that he makes is a film called Vincent, which is basically just a love letter to the actor for which Price provided narration. Oh, nice. And so he brings it back for this film and it becomes Vincent Price's last film. He doesn't have that much going on in this movie. He only has like two or three scenes. No, yeah, he's sort of just a charming old man, although the scene where he dies is is really upsetting. Just his totally. face going slack and then falling to the ground. Well, and, and the then hands. The scissors coming through the hands. Oh, man. Yeah, that was rough. That's, that's really great stuff from everyone involved, including Burton, the way he films it. So then we finally get the girl coming home. We've been hearing a lot about her. We've seen photos of her. Yeah. And she finally shows up in a mystery machine van in the middle of the night. So when you were saying that you had sort of forgotten about Diane Weist in this movie, the movie kind of does her a disservice because she is the main female character, even past the point when Winona Ryder enters the film, for a very long time until, like, the end of the movie, at which point it, like, hard switches gears and Winona Ryder becomes the most important supporting character in the movie. And Diane Weist is, like, shoved, shoved yeah, to the side vanishes. of the film. I would love to know what the like there must have been a different ending at first because that ending just felt so kind of tone deaf i don't know the whole climax it seems like not emotionally on the same level as the rest of the movie for some reason uh or maybe this is not a good ending i don't know i mean it's possible i'm trying to think if burton has a problem with endings i guess not really well he definitely has a lot of movies where the ending is just like a showdown like that yeah. like obviously batman which makes sense but sleepy hollow ends kind of the same way like it's just a big showdown where everyone's like oh like what's gonna happen um even Wee's big adventure 
just randomly ends with Pee-wee having to save a bunch of animals from a pet shop that's on fire. Like, he just runs. Like, he has to have, like, some kind of crazy climax go down in the movie just to make it tie together. Then I'm thinking of, like, Big Fish, which the ending just wrecks me. Like, he clearly, like, knows how to end a movie, at least some of the time. Well, and this movie also, like, the the snow at the end wrecks me. But it's just, like, the whole climax situation, I think, needs to uh, get reined in a little bit. But we'll get to that when we get there. Yeah, let's get back to Ryder. So this was supposed to be a big year for her. She was going to be in Godfather 3 as well. But that didn't work out. She had worked with Burton previously on Beetlejuice. What do we think of her in this movie? She's fine. She's she's kind of one note, to be honest. Yeah. She doesn't have a lot going on. But she's, you know, she gets the job done. She's pretty. She's innocent. She loves Edward. She puts up with Anthony Michael Hall. And, like, I don't know. She looks good when she twirls in the snow. Like, <laughs> I can't really ask much more of her. I don't know what I was expecting. But I will say that, you know, our last episode next week is going to be uh, superlatives for 1990, the BTT Emmys. And I have been making my list of performances just in preparation. And I had saved a slot in lead actress specifically for Winona Ryder in this movie. Cause I was so sure she was going to be great. And she is kind of just one note. It might be the character is written, but I, it's not a bad performance, but I found her weirdly less moving than like even Alan Arkin who in his brief moments of humanity, like, knocks my socks off. Yeah, they don't really dedicate a lot of time to her learning to accept slash fall in love with Edward. It just kind of happens because they they need it to. But I'm fine with that because I'm more interested in the neighborhood reacting to Edward. And it's true. Diane Reese, like, figuring out how to manage him. Like, And I think that the movie's stronger because it doesn't devote too much time to, like, the silly romance that let's be honest, like, is it, is that going to change? Is, is that going to like make an impact that they yeah. fall in love? Like every other movie. No, I'm realizing now that this is another sort of thing that, that makes the, the, the bookend story a little odd for me, or like just made me question it or made it not resonate perfectly for me is that I agree that the part of the movie that I'm most interested in is the rise and fall of Edward within the neighborhood yeah. and all the stuff with, with Kim, with, with Nona Ryder it just doesn't work on that same level. Is it as inventive or fun or, but on clearly the, Burton's not as interested on the surface level. It people like it because yeah. she's really pretty. They almost kiss. They dance in the snow and it ties a nice bow at the end of the movie that like, it's still snowing. We should just talk about the end of the movie now. Cause we keep <laughs> going back to it. Sorry for everyone trying to track us going in the order of the movie. For me, it's not the snow. I mean, the snow is beautiful. It's the reveal of the ice sculptures. Right, that too. Yeah. I will say this about Winona and Johnny. They fell in love on this movie and became an item. Very famous celebrity couple. And Johnny even tattooed Winona forever on his arm. And when they broke up, he got it changed to Wino forever. Because I guess he wants to be a hobo. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like there were warning signs. Hey, Winona claims he never heard her. So, I mean, I I don't know. Again, I can't get into this shit. I just wanted to tell the tattoo story. That is all. It's a good story. Anthony Michael Hall is her BF. Total jerk. Um, I really liked him. I thought he he really was a good arc of a bully. Way more character development than Winona gets. Like, in terms of him becoming worse and worse. 
the whole thing with his dad and he is a weirdly more dimensional character than she is. And it was funny to see him in this role because obviously he played a nerd a bunch of times in the 80s and now he's like, he he ate some whey. He grew and three feet. and Bulked up. Yeah. Good on him. He makes a good bully. He's And honestly, I think a lot of nerds usually turn into bullies anyway because they were bullied. Well, yeah. You know what I think is really great about his bullying is like, you don't know he's a bully at first. Yeah. He could just be the boyfriend. And, you know, he's a little bit of a jerk and, like, whatever. But, like, it takes a while for his true colors to show. He's not like a Biff where yeah. yes. he's just straight up terrible from, from word go. And I think there's more bullies in the world that'll be nice to you until the minute they actually need something from you or you piss them off in some way that they actually become a bully. And I don't know if this was intentional or not, but casting Anthony Michael Hall, for whom a lot of viewers, including myself, have like a specific image in their head, gets me on board with the character before I realize who he really is. Yeah. I I was predisposed to be sympathetic towards him and uh, felt a little hurt by that. His turn to like full on psycho? (laughs) Homicidal maniac? Is a little much. It's a little too much. I think I would have been happy if he had just beat the shit out of Edward and that's the last we ever see of him. Because that's enough. It's like, obviously this guy sucks. We don't need him to shoot at Edward and then be killed. Uh, (laughs) I think the movie kind of said what it needed to say without that ridiculous aspect, but really good bully. I will say uh, the original actor considered for the role was Crispin Glover, who is an actor that I love because of his insane weirdness. And I think Anthony Michael Hall is well positioned in this film, but I'm so curious what the movie would have looked like with Crispin Glover instead. Like the battle of the weirdos. <laughs> it would have been. I don't know. Maybe. He does seem like Edward would be the more natural casting for him, which is all the more reason why I'd want to see him in this role. Yeah. I, I could buy Crispin Glover going homicidal at the end. Maybe that would have helped. Anyway, there's a lot of scenes in this movie that, are just sort of cool set pieces. There's like the scene with all the haircutting, the scene with buying the shop, the beauty salon. Like there's, there's a lot of good moments that like all push the movie forward, but aren't like big moments. It's just sort of like day in the life type stuff. The scene at the school. uh, I love the scene at the school. (laughs) Yeah. A bunch of the karate chop. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just like a, uh, a string of really good scenes. I wonder if it's the influence of the novelist here, but you're right. It's very, like, observational. They're not exactly montages, but they have that feel where you're, like, just getting bits and pieces that start to form a mosaic of a story instead of, like, a really heavily plot-driven narrative. Obviously, the tide starts to turn with the beauty shop. He he gets into that thing with the neighbor where she wants to bone him. and Joyce, played by Kathy Baker. Yeah. She's great also. Like she's really, really good. Gross. And then so he's lost the support of the neighborhood a little bit. And then it's like the break in where Anthony Michael Hall's gonna have him rob the father's equipment to to then resell. Basically Anthony Michael Hall like becomes a crackhead at some point. <laughs> It, the Gotta movie get was, that van, man. The movie was missing the scene where he... I, I guess it shows him drinking a lot, so I guess he just has a really <laughs> bad, impulsive drinking problem. Uh, but he was doing some some pretty, like, deep cokehead moves towards the end of this movie. But the break-in is really scary. And you feel 
really bad for Edward, especially the way they dress him up in that jacket yeah. and the hat. It's and when just, he comes it's out upsetting. with the cops and he's got his scissor hands and you're like, yeah, he tried to open the door. Oh, yeah, it's very upsetting. That's really good. I have to say, the the like for me, the one of the first moments where I, I really had to stop and be like, wow, Depp is really good in this movie and I wasn't giving him enough credit right away, is when Kim confronts him after the break-in and asks him why he did it. And he says, because you asked me to. And we've had several characters say that's all that she needed to do prior to this. Like Anthony Michael Hall says it, like he'll do whatever you ask him to. So it's not new information. Right. But he says so much in the way he delivers it that it becomes new information. Like it does so much work to further their relationship that the movie has largely been ignoring. And it's all in depth's delivery of a line that we've literally heard earlier in the film. Yeah. And he even reveals that he knew it was the house. He knew it was um, Anthony Michael Hall's house. But he just did it because he wants to fit in. That's another scene we didn't talk about is the TV station. When they're asking the questions about like, well, if you didn't have your hands, you wouldn't be special. And like, clearly he's just like, dude, I don't want to not, I don't want to be special. (laughs) Like, this sucks. Everyone treats me like shit. And that's when you can feel, like, the Burton parallels the strongest, right? Where it's like, yeah, like, I guess I've got talent as an artist and maybe people recognize me for that. But I'm also really lonely because I feel like nobody gets me. They just want to use me and commoditize me. Yeah. And that's really powerful stuff. Yeah, Edward should have just gone to, like, some some industrial rock concerts, you know? (laughs) Some some Trent Reznor. He would have fit in. Uh, Anyway, uh... So then it's sort of a slippery slope to the end of the movie where Edward goes on a little rampage. He's just pissed off. He's pissed off at the world. It all culminates at Christmas, which is just a great time for things to culminate. Of course. And he goes off into the night. There's the beautiful snow moment where he's cutting an ice sculpture and Nona just walks out and music is swelling. That theme. I like that. I love Alan Arkin stapling the fake snow on the roof yeah, and singing in that ridiculous so, voice. <laughs> so gross. The fake snow on the roof. So One of the disgusting. funniest things I've seen in a while. Yeah, there's a lot of confusion happens where, you know, Edward tries to save. There's a lot of little things that yeah. basically add up to he runs away back to his castle. It's, it's very Frankenstein. I mean, because obviously, although the movie doesn't hit it too hard, this is like a universal monster movie for the 1990s. But yeah. it isn't really until this part here that that gets revealed because yeah. it's been so much a comment on 1990 instead of those types of films. And then it's this weird Batman climax where it's literally the same room as the end of Batman. <laughs> a shadowy <laughs> dust filled room at the top of a Gothic stone building. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just feel like, she could have run up there and they could have been like, we got to go get him. And I don't know, maybe like them rumbling at the house could have made shit fall. And I'm basically just saying they didn't need to have the action murder set. Piece. It does feel almost <laughs> tacked on because there is like this weird double fake out where the cop pretends to kill him. And then Winona Ryder pretends that he's dead too, like in almost the same way. Yeah. And like, it's not exactly clear what is going on there and like why it's continuing the way it is. And it, up until the point where he brandishes the gun, I feel like the the worst Anthony Michael Hall deserved was like the breakup and not <laughs> death. Not murder. Maybe he could have gotten arrested somehow. Um, like his father's stereo equipment's in the back or something. I don't know. But 
I felt bad for him. What do we think about the choice to have it be a deliberate act? Because there's a version of this movie where Edward kills somebody, but it's an accident, right? And that's why he has to stay in isolation? At the point where he's trying to kill him, I yeah. I don't care. Like, it is what it is. It's, it's basically self-defense. He was hitting Winona. Like, fuck you, man. Uh, I, I don't mind it. But again, it all ties into the same thing where, like, I don't even think a murder was needed at this yeah. moment. I think the betrayal of the community is more than enough drama to end the movie on. It just reeks of like we need something to happen at the end of this movie, and you know it's it's it plays to yeah. a general audience. So whatever, it's fine. It is there. Yeah, it's fine. It's sort of Shakespearean. I mean, I do like that the gloves, that the scissor hands remain scary the entire movie, and that part of that is how easy it is for him to kill once he decides to do it. Right. Anyway, then we get the reveal that. It never snowed here before, but now it does. And it's beautiful. It's a nice moment when he's chopping up the ice, and there's the end of the movie. We haven't really talked about topiaries at all either. I guess because the ice is like topiary 2.0, and because it's ice, is slightly more magical. But I love all the topiaries, too. The dinosaur, so good. Yeah, it's funny how Edward, despite him being like the virtuous, different person compared to this toxic community ends up making the neighborhood twice as ugly <laughs> with the haircuts and the topiaries. <laughs> like, yeah, it's true. His aesthetics are um, a bit much. Yeah. It's very extra. Yeah. Especially the haircuts, especially the dog haircuts. Those are really, really bad dog haircuts. I thought we should wrap it up with, I want to, I want to talk Burton for a second. Now that we've okay. gone through the, the most of the movie here, my, realization watching this my take is that you know burton's great strength is his aesthetic um which is very unique and very particularly him and his best movies are the ones that make that part of the narrative and the thematic makeup of the film where that oddness that surreality that strange edward gory macabreness is part of what the movie is trying to say and 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 using to build its story and not just its visual look and his worst movies are the ones that just use it as a style over something that is otherwise unrelated and this movie may be the best example this or ed wood of him making it central to the narrative and i think they're some of his best films yeah yeah, I don't know. It, it it just really does seem like some of his worst movies, he's just kind of coasting on the aesthetic and not on the making you feel for the characters. And, like, the aesthetic is still good, but you just don't really care that much about the people. Because that's the tragedy of this movie. It's like, you really feel bad for Edward. The whole movie, you feel terrible for Edward. From beginning to end. And I feel bad for Peg. Diane Weist. Yeah. so bad for her. Yeah. <laughs> It's amazing. But even something like Pee-wee where like you just you love Pee-wee so much that you just want him to win. And like <laughs> it's just not there in some of these other other movies, which again I admit I haven't watched many and, of them. And then but isn't like part of the reason we love Pee-wee because he is the outsider, because he is the Burton of it all? Because he's so anarchic and strange. Mm, to us, he is. But in his universe, he's not. In his universe, yeah. he's kind of a Chad, to be honest. Everyone <laughs> loves him. 
even in Pee-wee's Playhouse, like everyone shows up at his house. They think he's the shit. He yeah. fights bad people. Like he's he's the best in uh, in <laughs> in his universe. Anyway, let's talk legacy of this movie. Budget of the film twenty million dollars. It opens. Uh, it goes wide December fourteenth to six point three million. Uh, maybe a bit of a warning sign. Not able to top uh, Home Alone, which is you know about a, a three weeks into its juggernaut run and can't be stopped. Mm. But it does go on to gross fifty six point four million domestic and eighty six million worldwide. So it's a solid hit. And it winds up yeah. ranked number twentieth for the year domestically. Totally. And I think it's one of the, especially for people our age, it's like one of the most culturally impactful movies from 1990. I think it's really stood totally. the test of time. People know this movie. People saw this movie when they were kids. Like this is a bona fide classic that lives on. I think part of the reason that I had avoided it for so long is because like I consider myself very much not a like Spencer's Gifts kind of person a hot topic kind of person and that this permeated the culture and particularly that aspect that subset of the culture so thoroughly that that was i couldn't separate my feelings for one from the other yeah lastly we should mention it got nominated for best makeup for stan winston which makeup was a stacked category this year i gotta say with total recall and dick tracy also competing yeah and this one this is the one that has actual makeup in the movie so I bet the makeup artists were like extra voting for it. Or do they look at like cosmetic makeup as like, I don't know, like. A, a... Oh, no. I mean, that's that shit she was putting on him is like their basis. That's the <laughs> first step of their of their work. So I think they were giving it extra love. Ben, I, in terms of this movie's legacy, I have a question for you. Have you ever played Edward Forty Hands? <laughs> I have not, have I? Did we play it one time in college? No, I, I did not. I recall much discussion of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think my uh, my now fiance Jesse has played it before. I should ask her. She meant we watched the movie together, and she was like Edward Forty Hands. So I've never played it either, <laughs> but it sounds like a good time. Did I? I swear to God, it happened once, but maybe it wasn't us. Maybe it was like maybe Xander. someone did it. Yeah, I don't know. For those who don't know, Edward Forty Hands is the game where you t- tie two malt liquors to your malt liquor forties to your hands with duct tape, and you have to finish both of them before you can urinate. It's probably a dangerous <laughs> game. What What would Burton <laughs> think if you asked him to play that with him? I don't know. Maybe he'd be down. Maybe he would want nothing to do with it. I have no idea. I Maybe he's not a party guy. Maybe I, I, I don't know. We'd get along well. <laughs> All right. So that's that's this movie's most important legacy. 90s themes. 90s themes. The last one. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. On the surface level, I just want to mention the whole Reagan, end of the Reagan era. I feel like this is a real evisceration of the reagan situation at the time if reagan is idolizing the 50s and this movie is like the whole aesthetic of the town is very like quasi 50s-esque you can totally read it as a rebuke of that attitude of that romanticism of that time yeah Uh, that's how i read it anyway like it's just the 90, and then once again, the 90s are here. Like that that huge contrast of the suburbs and then like the Nine Inch Nails leather dude. 
it's it's big. Dots are here, man. Look at it, him. He's wrapped in leather. It also ties in with that thing that I still haven't been able to put a name on, but just that new 90s alternative weirdness. I just feel like you wouldn't see Edward Scissorhands in like 1985. I agree. And it just feels right to be there in 1990. I don't know. Well, that ties into one of the themes that I want to talk about, which was directorial signature, which we talked about specifically as being like something that was lost value, lost cachet in the 80s. Yeah. Movies didn't really strive to have distinct directorial signatures. They tried to be more fungible, more cookie cutter, more exchangeable. They all wanted the House Amblin style that was like homogenous and safe and successful. And come the 90s, we see the resurgence of directors whose primary appeal is how specific their films are to themselves. So either people returning to the fore, like Martin Scorsese with Goodfellas, or the Coens finding their footing with Miller's Crossing, or Dante going bug nuts in Gremlins 2, or something like this with Burton, you know, really cementing who Burton is as the main thing that makes a Burton movie what it is. Yeah, totally. But it looks like you have a theme. Yeah, I wrote wrote a novel here. I... Look, this is the last 90s themes that we're going to get to talk about. So I I spent a lot of time thinking about the movies that we had watched and trying to understand in a broader sense what drew me to the movies that I liked and what distinguished them from the movies that I didn't like. So while I was in the middle of this, of trying to unpack all my thoughts and feelings, I heard Jamel Bowie, who is a columnist for the New York Times, describe the 1990s and the, and the cultural shift that happened during that decade as being, uh, his terminology was the reassertion of national innocence, which I thought was really interesting because that does not match with my reading of the films of 1990 very closely, mm, right? Okay. Like innocence has not been a major theme that we've talked about. Other than the passive protagonist thing, which is sort of that way, That's but... That's interesting. You know, like, they aren't responsible for what happens. Yeah. That's interesting. But it's not like they're, like, children. They're just caught up yeah. in the events of what's happening around them, so... I will say that, as I started to think about it, I, I could see how things were trending in that direction, potentially. So, some examples are in Jacob's Ladder, we talked about how that was the end of a cycle of anti-war Vietnam films. So, that means that, like, as... Films in the 90s begin to look at Vietnam and war in general. They get less anti-war. The big Vietnam film in the 90s is Forrest Gump, yeah, which is treating it totally differently. And then the biggest war film of the 90s is Saving Private Ryan, which is, a be- although it's like an anti-war film, is also really invested in the nobility of Americans in World War II. Right. And then I was thinking about how Humphrey October reimagined uh, American victory in the Cold War. And how that was sort of like, it, it wanted to do away with all the darkness of that conflict and just make it this righteous, triumphant struggle. And then with Godfather 3, we talked about, or rather with Home Alone, I talked about like how spiritual and moral salvation have been prevalent themes, particularly tied with wealth, but not necessarily. So you've got films like Pretty Woman and Misery and State of Grace and Total Recall and Dick Tracy and Psycho 4 and Rocky 5 and Ghost and Goodfellas and Reversal of Fortune and Awakenings and Jacob's Ladder and Dance of the Wolves and Godfather 3 and Home Alone that all have people trying to exculpate past sins. By the way, let me just footnote really quickly. If you are a fan of any of those long list of movies Ben just mentioned, you can listen to our episode on those movies 
available <laughs> further down if you scroll the podcast. Just scroll down, particularly if you like me rambling on, because I haven't even gotten to my point yet. Please. I want to talk about Total Recall as, like, my chief example here. Because on its surface, it doesn't seem to fit this idea at all of, like, exculpation or national innocence. It's a deeply cynical film that's highly critical of the state of American culture. But the character of Quaid is actually a very illustrative departure from Schwarzenegger's run in the 80s. He isn't an anti-hero. He's just a hero. He is literally fighting to preserve the good parts of himself from the corruption of the bad parts. Right. And his victory isn't achieved through murder, but by saving innocent people in the dome that's being the air is letting being let out of. Compare that to Predator or Commando or Conan the Barbarian, where, where he wins the movie by killing a monster. Well, that's part of my problem with Edward Scissorhands, is that... He's this innocent guy who doesn't want to hurt anybody, but then in the last five minutes, he fucking kills a guy. He murks like, a dude, like, straight maybe up. Maybe it's weirdly out of step with where the, the movies are at this time. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's very strange, but yeah, I totally see what you're saying, and it's just funny that Edward has to end up stabbing a guy. Yeah. So, in Total Recall, we see a familiar narrative or character being reframed in a way that makes him, like, more noble. And that is, in a way, like, asserting innocence. It's an act of exculpation. Yeah. Schwarzenegger is no longer a ruthless killing machine. He's a decent man who wants to help people. Yeah, and it's funny because that maybe ties a little bit into, like, where America was at the time. It's like, okay, Cold War's over. We're just the peacekeepers now. We're just going to make sure that the whole world is uh, not going to devolve into chaos. Which obviously ends after 9-11, and we are right back where we started with invading the fuck out of countries and... Now, like, Jesus, now we're just totally crazy. We're the victors. We're the cops. We are the white knights of the world. But not in that 2000s way where it's like, we're going to kill terrorists. There, we're righteous Avengers. Yeah. Here, we are like the shining light. Right. Exactly. The, the shining city on the hill. The, the beacon for all that should be in the world. And just look at the movies that are going to define the 90s as a whole. Films like Titanic and Independence Day and Armageddon and Forrest Gump and Saving Private Ryan and Apollo 13. You've got the rise of Pixar and the Disney Renaissance. Like, they are they are innocent films. And they are films where America is not a corrupt or broken society, but a beacon and full of good, decent people doing good, decent things. Yeah, I think that there there was a backlash to that at the same time. But in terms of, like, these big studio movies, like, like there was definitely a subset of people that were, like, America's bullshit. And <laughs> Fuck that. there's aliens and, like, they're covering, they're lying to us. Like, that was a thing, too. Yeah. But in terms of these big-ass movies, I totally agree. Yes. And I like basically all of those movies that I just mentioned. But to, to bring this home, the... the to get back to the difference between the movies I liked and those I didn't, I, I was realizing that the movies that really resonated with me are the ones that aren't heading in this direction. The ones that are still highly critical of American society, that are still willing to show characters who are miserable or corrupt or broken with no chance of redemption. So it's things like Godfather 3 and Exorcist 3 and Miller's Crossing and Goodfellas, where they won't excuse the characters. They won't excuse the national character. 
in some of those films, like Godfather 3 and Goodfellas, the argument is that there are sins that cannot be forgiven. And things like Miller's Crossing and Exorcist 3, it's worlds and characters that are so consumed with corruption that salvation isn't even in the question. Like, nobody's even trying or bothering with it. Yeah. And then films like Ghost and Pretty Woman and Dances with Wolves, which are like my trifecta of the really popular films that I was a little more cautious on, are all about these good people doing good, fundamentally decent things. Just as like, a, as their inherent nature is as, as American people. <laughs> totally. Edward Scissorhands is sort of an odd fit for this pattern, but I do think it fits in that Edward himself is a very innocent character, but he inhabits this really broken and corrupt society. The town is so disgusting and it's so clearly a, stand in for America as a whole. It's like so yeah. quintessentially Americana that it's like synecdoche for the American character. And so I think it absolutely fits in this trend of films that are, are, are actually moving away from the way the decade is headed. Gotcha. Now I wanted to articulate this one last way. Cause I actually think it's a really important point. And in so doing pull in one of our other major themes, which was crime. We've talked about crime basically every episode. It's been ever present in the movies of 1990 even kids' movies like Home Alone and Rescuers Down Under have it. And we've talked about it as being like existential, as a threat to American society. And as I was thinking about this, I realized that the implication that that carries is that it's apart from American society, that they don't go together, that society is innocent and pure and good, and criminality is something that threatens. It's like an it. invader. And that's such an absurd proposition in the year 2020. It's, it, it, totally ignores all of the social economic and racial implications of that attitude that but you we know what now that attitude that attitude completely prevails to this day like any politician that wants a couple extra points is just gonna fight crime and like get arrests up or whatever and crime is still i think crime is always going to be treated as such that it's not a fundamental part of society that it is a, an ill to be cured and yet, I think that that attitude has shifted at least slightly when we look at the way that 90s policies that reflected this, you know, like That's true. mass incarceration yeah. and broken people windows. People are more understanding, for sure. But it's still there. And there's plenty of people that believe that there's bad guys out there that need to get taken down. And, like, it's that simple. Because it's good, it's good politics. It scares the shit out of people. It does, and it's so easy to, to to make it the other, to make it separate, to idealize the things that you love and not see how they are the other side of the coin from the things that you fear. And it's also funny in terms of Edward Scissorhands because the minute that the terrible housewives start turning on Edward, they're like, I'm calling the police on you. <laughs> like, they immediately become fucking Karens, like within two seconds. <laughs> And the cops are out there trying to kill Edward all of a sudden. Like, it's the same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. So anyway, yeah, that's, I just wanted to like, I, that didn't really tie together quite as clean as I wanted, but I did think it was something worth noting that there is sort of these two divergent threads happening in the films that we watched. And I think one is more honest about the state of our world and the, what it means to be a human being. Word. I agree. All right. Well, that was Edward Scissorhands. In all of its glory. Good one to go out on. I'm glad we saved it for last. And wow, 1990. What a year it has been. It's. I feel more connected to my birth self. <laughs>
I now have a full picture of what was going on yeah. as I exited the womb. Um, <laughs> I so, understand the culture into which I was birthed. Exactly. I think that's an important thing. I think it's cult- context is good. Context is a good thing. Yeah. All right. So let's do our plugs. We are on social media. We have an Instagram. We have a Twitter, BTTM pod. We're on Letterboxd as well. You should subscribe to this podcast if you enjoyed this Edward Scissorhands content. We have a lot of episodes, and we are moving into a new year next year. Yeah. Should we give people, listeners, a little bit of a roadmap for what to expect? Yeah, sure. We're, we've got the superlatives episode that we're going we're gonna to do here in short order, but then we're going to take a little bit of a break. Yes. You know, it's been a long season. We need a chance to recuperate. The holidays are upcoming. So we don't know exactly how long it'll be. It'll probably be a couple weeks at least. Uh, but we will be coming back. Yes, and we have a brand new year that we were actually alive for. Should we spoil it now? <laughs> or I guess we'll spoil it for the, the Emmys. Let's save it for then. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we've we basically said it like three or four times before this. But um, let's just say that we mentioned a movie that will be featured in that season already in this episode. Oh, my God. Cool. Let's also give... Some shout outs to Jackie Saltzman, who designed our beautiful logo with the film strips, and to Andy Gagnon, who composed our epic theme song. Thanks, guys. You're the best. Yeah. So, yeah, that's about it. We'll see you next week for the BTT Emmys. For Back to the Movies, this has been Nat. And I'm Ben. And we'll see you next week when we go back to the movies. Oh, man. I just love it so much when Edward chops things. It's so funny when he just... His little fingers down. He also gets that look in his face. He's yes. so happy to be an artist. It's so sad. I love every time he walks by a shrub and he has to just trim. Oh, yeah. <laughs>